The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 20th, 2022. This week, Ukraine has been at the center of international attention. In addition to a cyber attack on critical information networks, Russian-backed rebels allegedly crossed the ceasefire line in eastern Ukraine and fired shells into the country, including some that struck a kindergarten classroom. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from November 2017, which featured a discussion with Ann Applebaum that delved into Ukraine's history. Applebaum spoke with Ben Wittes about the devastating impact of Joseph Stalin's 1929 agricultural collectivization policy, which catalyzed the most lethal famine in European history and left millions of Ukrainian peasants dead. They also discussed Applebaum's book on the topic, which reveals the more insidious intent behind the Soviet Union's policy and enforcement, and how this was relevant to Putin's agenda at the time. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 1st, 2017. One of the great pleasures of working for the Washington Post editorial page was sitting next to and working with the great Ann Applebaum, historian, journalist, good friend, and chronicler of the ugliest parts of Soviet history. Anne's new book, Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, came out recently. It is a must-read and a masterpiece. And I was lucky enough to sit down with Anne the other day and talk about the book and its contemporary relevance. You might remember the country Ukraine because it's still in the news these days. We talked about Stalin's war on Ukraine and Putin's and how they are connected. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 257, Anne Applebaum on Red Famine. Let's start with an overview of the book itself, which is it's not obvious to uh, a lot of listeners why this book would have contemporary relevance. And I want to get to that and focus on that. But I, I also just want to start with what the book is and what what the larger project that, that that you've done here looks like. So the book is the story of the Ukrainian famine, which was a kind of famine within a famine. Um, it was a moment in um, nineteen the the autumn of nineteen thirty two when Stalin faced with a real situation of chaos. He had he had launched a policy of collectivization. 
um, which meant that he was forced all peasants in the Soviet Union to leave their homes and farms and to join state farms. And there had been a lot of resistance. Um, there had been a lot of disruption. The policy never worked the way it was supposed to work. Um, and, e and he, even at that particular moment, may have felt under threat. There were beginning to be grumblings seriously inside the party that this was a disastrous idea. People knew that it, the peasants were paying a big price. They knew there were terrible food shortages. Um, actually, that autumn, his wife killed herself. And that may have been for many reasons, but at the time it was suspected that it was her disillusionment with the communist project. Um, and so at this moment, he was facing what could have been really a terrible crisis. And at, just at that time, he decided to widen and deepen the famine instead of ending it, which he could have done, I should stipulate. Um, he decided to widen and deepen the famine in Ukraine, and he focused it on Ukraine. He passed a series of, there were, the Politburo passed a series of pieces of legislation that um, blacklisted towns and villages in Ukraine so they couldn't receive any food and they couldn't even receive any manufactured products. Um, he, he passed laws that effectively created a kind of cordon around Ukraine so Ukrainian peasants couldn't leave the republic and search for food anywhere else. Um, and at the height of this um, moment, he sent, there were teams of activists that were sent from house to house in Ukrainian villages and took literally all the food. So not just wheat and corn, but also beans and peas and squash and fruit and vegetables and sometimes cows and livestock and even pets. There, there, there are records of that. And, and so this was a famine caused by the fact that the food was taken away and people were not allowed to leave. And so then they died. And there's this big spike in death rates in the spring of 1933 in Ukraine, um, particularly in central Ukraine, which had been a region that was very anti-Soviet, historically anti-Soviet, um, and had also objected very strongly to collectivization. So, um, and then I should add that at the same time, um, starting around around the same moment, 1933, he also began a series of mass arrests of Ukrainian intellectuals, kind of intellectuals, artists, writers, um, thinkers, even museum curators, members of the Ukrainian Communist Party. There's mass arrest of any sort of the entire leading class of of Ukraine, um, and it was really these two events: the famine plus the mass arrests that led to the Sovietization of Ukraine and the eradication, at least until the late 1980s, of any Ukrainian sense of sovereignty or national identity or um, really any Ukrainian challenge to Moscow's central power. And and you, just to situate this book in your larger body of work, this is not the first book that you have written by any means uh, related to this period of uh, Soviet history. Uh, so situate it, if you can, uh, for us against this larger body of work that starts with Gulag and, and has continued since. So yeah, my, my first big history book was a history of the Gulag, which was a history of the Soviet camp system. And actually I en encountered the the peasants in the Gulag story, because a lot of them end up in the Gulag in the early 1930s, and they're really the first big population that comes into the camp system. Um, I then wrote a book which is about um, uh, which is about the Sovietization of Central Europe, which happens after the war in the 1940s, and is done using somewhat different methods. But if you were, that book is a is really a, the proper companion of this book because 
those are both they're both books about how you um, Soviet whatever whatever you know verb you want to use Sovietize or totalitarianize or <clears throat> or conquer really um, a country according in in a Stalinist method and in all cases it involved eradicating or repressing. Um, the leading intellectuals and the leading politicians of a, of a particular country. Um, in, East, in Central Europe, it involved a lot of pressure on civil society, newspapers, independent organizations. In Ukraine, which was a much more primitive place in the 1930s, it involved this terrible repression of the peasants who were, were rebellious. Um, and in both cases, what it did was um, eliminated any alternative sources of power. So, you know, Moscow just couldn't have any other poles of power. There couldn't be anybody else who had any alternative identity inside the Soviet sphere or who, um, and who opposed the system. And that was, you know, in, in that sense, I mean, they're quite different, the 40s and the 30s, but in that sense, that's what they have in common. Give us a sense of the scale. I mean, the thing that always shocks me when I hear about the Ukraine and uh, famine in the 30s is, you know, that the death level is sort of Holocaust level, uh, and it comes on top of the period uh, in the revolutionary, the war of the Russian Revolution, uh, which is itself unbelievable body counts. And so, like, what's the what's the death level that we're talking about in 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 these events that you're writing about? So in Ukraine, um, I, there is a group of demographers who've been working on this question, actually, for the last several years and working in local archives. And the, the best numbers that we have is um, is about 4 million people die in the Ukrainian famine. And that's between about 19, end of 1931 and 1934. So including this moment of this spike in, in 1933. Um, and that's, that's as set against the wider Soviet famine, which is about another million people. So it's a so you have three point nine million in Ukraine. You have five million overall. And then, if you go back to the 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 war that the war that follows the revolution, the, the civil war, the Rus- civil, Russian and Ukrainian civil war. Yeah. Um, w- what does that add to the total? So I don't know the I don't know the exact numbers, but that that war. Um, as I actually explain in the book, is really the precedent for the famine, um, both because it's a real, you know, it was a terrible brutalization. Um, it involved, for example, pogroms of Jews in in, in Ukraine and elsewhere. Um, and that's, you know, I don't know that the numbers there are millions, but there are certainly hundreds of thousands in the, in the Civil War. Um, and it's also an important precedent because the Civil War was a moment when Stalin was very involved in Ukraine. He was the Commissar of Nationalities in the first Soviet government, and it was his responsibility to put down Ukraine. And the, the both the Ukrainian national movement. There was actually a moment in 1917 when Ukraine declared independence. It had it tried to become its own state, and the defeat of that state was one of Stalin's early responsibilities. Um, and a kind of vast peasant rebellion that happens in 1919. Um, as a result of the Bolsheviks' first invasion, is also one of his responsibilities to put that down. And so, when he's in 1932, when he's looking at this problem of Ukraine during the fa- during the collectivization, um, he's not acting out of you know it's not a blank slate. I mean, he has in his head the recollection and memory of 1917. He's talking about it. He's referring to it. Um, he talks about the Ukrainians being unreliable. You know, they're you know we know about them. You know, they're petlorists. He says, and Petlora was one of the leaders of the 
Ukrainian national movement during the Civil War. Um, and so he, he, he's, he sees Ukraine as this potential challenge, um, you know, dating back, uh, you know, a decade. I asked you to do this podcast because at the book party for the launch of this book, uh, you situated this famine and these sets of events against uh, the much more recent Ukrainian-Russian or attitudes on the part of Putin toward Ukraine that led to his response to the Maidan and uh, the subsequent war and invasion. Um, walk us through that. Why, why, <clears throat> why should anybody, you know, other than interest in history itself, which is, of course, a self-justifying reason, but... But somebody who's interested in the contemporary Russian-Ukrainian relationship as and one which in turn has spin-off effects for the Russian-American relationship, why should they be interested in this period? So when Putin in two thousand and fourteen, if if you remember, there was there had been a elected in Ukraine as to the presidency of Ukraine. By the way, advised by Paul Manafort, there was a uh, Viktor Yanukovych um, became president. He and he immediately began to in, encroach on the Ukrainian constitution. Um, he put a lot of pressure on the Ukrainian opposition, and then at a at a crucial moment, he severed a deal. He announced he would not do a deal that his predecessors had started working on a trade deal with the with the European Union. And in 2014, that led to a, a mass street revolution, and there were hundreds and thousands, actually, and of young young Ukrainians on the streets for day after day after day, all through the winter, um, protesting. And what were they calling for? They were calling for democracy. They were calling for rule of law. They were calling, they were demonstrating against corruption because Yanukovych was very profoundly corrupt. Um, and they were calling for closer ties with Europe. And they were waving European flags. Um, and when Putin saw that group of that group of people using that kind of language with, you know, waving EU flags, what he saw was, just as Stalin saw in Ukraine, he saw a threat to him personally. So, you know, of course, a a European Ukraine would not be a threat to Russia or Russians. It would be good for Russia. Of course, there would be, it would be a more prosperous country. It would be easier to trade with and so on. But to the oligarchic autocracy that Putin now represents, um, this kind of political movement is a huge challenge. And of course, if Ukraine became European, anything resembling European or anything resembling democracy, that's an enormous existential challenge to the Putin regime. Because if Ukrainians can be Democrats, then why can't Russians? And these are closely related nations. They have a lot of overlap. There's a lot of intermarriage. There's a lot of you know, joint history. And the idea that Ukrainians could take a different path from Russia is something that Putin cannot tolerate. And this, I think, is something you could almost describe as him having in his KGB DNA. I mean, he's a, he himself was a product of the same system. Um, he, he, too, looks upon this threat of rebellion and anarchy in Ukraine, much as Stalin did, as a, just an, in, an unacceptable challenge um, and, a, and a challenge to his authority and, and to and to his form of, as I said, autocratic, oligarchic government. Um, And so his reaction in 2014, which was the invasion of Crimea and the annexation of Crimea, and then the invasion of eastern Ukraine, which then led in turn to western sanctions on Russia, 
um, I think falls very much into this older pattern, you know, that Russians are, Russians look on Ukraine as a place that cannot be allowed to make its own decisions. And it certainly cannot be allowed to have any kind of political system that brings it closer to the West than to Russia, because it, it is, a, I mean, you know, a little bit, it's like a colonial relationship. You know, it's, think of Britain and Ireland in the 19th century, and you know, up until Easter Rising. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And do you think that that is when, when, when Putin makes these decisions... Do you think he is making it with an awareness of this period of history and the 1917 Ukrainian Declaration of, of Independence uh, or Declaration of Statehood? Is he, I, I mean, is, is, does, does he have a sense of it as tied historically the so, way you are describing it as I tied s- historically? So I don't, I don't know this because he hasn't personally told me this, <laughs> but... Um, I suspect that he does because that is how the KGB trained. They studied the they studied history, and they looked at their past operations and analyzed them. And they, the, and so he, as a young KGB officer in the seventies and eighties, would have done that. I mean, I've seen you know actually while working on my Gulag book, I discovered that the what was it wasn't then the KGB, it was the NKVD. Um, wrote its own history, so it wrote. So I found a history of the Gulag written by the NKVD that was in in the archives, and they wrote their own history so that you know from their own point of view, um, that was then used in training young officers. So that you know there is no doubt in my mind that Putin knows this about Ukraine. There's another important thing about Putin though, which is that he was in Dresden in East Germany in 1989. And the most scarring experience of his life, you know, just as the Civil War was scarring for Stalin, the most scarring experience for him was the fall of the Berlin Wall, which, of course, also started with street demonstrations in Leipzig and and Berlin. Um, And for him, this was devastating. You know, they had to rush out of East Germany. They had to burn their files. They lost their houses. Their Stasi friends lost their houses. Even his wife has spoken about how traumatic this moment was. And so for Putin, the trauma of uh, a democratic revolution um, which, by the way, he he never sees as, you know, he never allows, you know, concedes that a Ukrainian revolution would be spontaneous. He always sees it as somehow orchestrated by, by Hillary Clinton, by Hillary specific, Clinton. Specifically. Exactly. exactly by Hillary Clinton or by somebody in the CIA or, you know, the the BND or something. Um, and so he, they don't see it as being spontaneous. They see it as being orchestrated. And this, you know, stopping this kind of movement is something that, you know, it's, it, you know, there's an older history, but there's also a more recent history. So if. As you imagine him, his historical consciousness of these events, 
Do you think somebody uh, that the KGB training would cause him to look back at this and reflect on it with as a successful operation? I mean, yes, four million people died, but after all, collectivization happened. This the Ukraine. Ukraine was not especially restive, except during the Nazi invasion, until the Soviet Union fell. Until the 1980s. And so I, I could imagine how somebody sort of steeped in the way that you're describing him's thinking looks at this and says, you know, basically shit happens and, you know, uh, politics is tough, but we successfully protected uh, this from, from uh, you know, a kind of irredentist move Counter-revolution. and we, we we kept it in the fold for, for the next four, 45 years. So, you know, I've never heard him speak to this specifically, but my guess would be, um, yes, they would see it. I don't know that they would use the word success, but there's certainly never been any public regret that this happened. Um, on the contrary, um, first the Soviet state and now the Russian state, which actually, if you think about it, doesn't have to take responsibility for this. You know, the Russian, the modern Russian state could say we're not we're not the inheritors of the Soviet of Soviet history policy. You know, we think this, we condemn this and it was terrible. They have never done that. You know, no, no Russian leader since the 1990s has ever has ever done that. And Putin, you know, Putin and and his colleagues, Medvedev and others have gone out of their way, in fact, to push back on against the. You know, for example, Ukraine's attempt to have the famine recognized as a genocide in international law. They've absolutely pushed back against it, even going to the extent of threatening, you know, their neighbors and other countries, you know, don't don't sign up to this or we'll retaliate. So it's something they care about a lot. And they for them, this is part of. um, Yeah, I think it's part of, you know, it's legitimate because it had the ultimate goal of keeping Ukraine inside the Soviet Union, effectively keeping it as a colony of Russia. Um, and and they refuse to this day to, to see it otherwise. There was, among the many disgraces that happened in that period, uh, one involves a prominent institution of American letters, which is to say the New York Times uh, and its correspondent in Moscow and his coverage of the period, um, of, of events from Moscow. Um, and... I am interested in your sense, first of all, in, in uh, just as an American accountability question, uh, what was the role of journalism and this f- particular journalist, uh, Walter Durante, uh, in this? And who are the Walter Durantes today? Hmm. Um, well, Walter Durante was the, in his time, was the most famous and most celebrated Moscow correspondent, Western Moscow correspondent. Um, he was so influential that Roosevelt um, sought his advice and described meeting Durante as, a, as a very important to him. And this is, remember, a moment in, you know, by the early 1930s, um, the United States becomes very interested in the Soviet Union because of the depression in the U.S. and this feeling that maybe the Soviets had discovered some new kind of economics that we could use. And so that's an important piece of background. Durante won the Pulitzer Prize in 1931 for writing a series of glowing articles about collectivization and industrialization and how well the Soviet Union was doing, essentially. And he had this attitude. He wasn't left-wing. He wasn't a communist. He was sort of you know, his attitude was, I'm a realist, I can see there's some downsides to this, you know, 
bad luck on, you know, the starving peasants, but, um, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, which was literally a phrase that he used in one of his articles. Um, he was, um, he certainly knew about the famine, and we know that because he told, he had a long conversation, he was actually British, um, uh, and he had a long conversation with a British diplomat in Moscow who reported it in a ca cable sent home, and then the, the diplomat wrote, well, yes, Mr. Durante thinks that maybe 10 million people have died, but he hasn't sh hasn't shared this piece of information with his American readers. So he never wrote about the famine, and not only that, when there was one reporter who um, who was not in Moscow, it was very difficult, I should say, for any Moscow correspondent to write anything at that time that was counter to Soviet wishes because of censorship, and you know you could just be chucked out of the country. There was one exception to this, which was a young Welsh reporter who spoke Russian, um, who. Uh, came to uh, Mo uh, Moscow in 1933 in March, and because of some connections and his links to Lloyd George and the former British Prime Minister, got permission to take to go to Kharkiv in, in Ukraine. Got, took a train to Kharkiv, got off the train in the middle of the tracks, started walking down the tracks through the countryside in the middle of the famine, and saw everything. Um, wrote about it extensively, kept notebooks. And then when he left the country, held a press conference in Berlin, said there's this terrible famine happening. It's a disaster. And this is the moment where Durante becomes more than just a, you know, your ordinary kind of not very responsible reporter. He wrote a piece entitled Russians are Hungry but Not Starving, in which he just specifically put down Jones. And he says this young Welshman, you know, He's, it's all very well. He's very enterprising that he did this and so on. But, you know, he hasn't, only, he hasn't seen the whole country and he doesn't have the big picture. And so essentially Durante's narrative at that time was so much more important. He was so much more powerful that he, um, that he you know, he becomes an important piece of the cover-up. Because if Walter Durante says there's no famine, then nobody believed there was a famine. And Gareth Jones, okay, he, but he was, you know, he was in his 20s. He writes for minor British publications. We don't know who he is. Um, and he, <clears throat> and he, he, you know, he loses that argument in, in a sense. And so what Durante does is he presents Washington um, and New York with the version of events that they want to hear. People are interested at that moment in hearing that there are successes in the Soviet Union because they want to imitate them. Whatever you know, we we also want to do central planning. We also want to do industrialization. You know, we we're looking for something that works, and Durante is offering us that. And so I think that's an important piece of of explaining. You know, these are not. You know, these are this is not a these are not communists who are sympathetic with Stalin because they're Marxists. You know, this is Roosevelt and Durante, and a and a group of. Okay, they're by modern standards they're leftish intellectuals, but they were you know they're not revolutionaries. But they they're looking for something they can apply at home, and so they see what they want to see. They see the success, and they don't see the famine. Um, and you can certainly look at contemporary examples of that. I mean, a lot of American debate about foreign countries is very often we see what we want to see. We see the you know, the, the, the piece of the story that is relevant to our politics or is relevant to our economic interests, and we don't see the rest. And I think there are, <clears throat> there are you know, numerous examples of that now. Anne Applebaum, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Anne Applebaum for signing five books to give away to Lawfare's top five donors over the next few days. You still have time. 
go to the support page online. Our music is, as ever, performed by the one, the only, Sophia Yan. Give us that five-star review and share Lawfare and its podcast on all the social media platforms you use. Thanks for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.